a small town in anywhere America was growing a little bit annoyed with their neighbors because after the Christmas lights came down for most people around mid-January, one particular family decided to leave theirs up well into March and uh, it was growing some annoyance and uh, everybody kind of knew everybody. And, um, so some people weren't holding back their complaints any longer because, you know, enough's enough. Every good thing has an expiration date. It's time to move on, right? Eventually the family that left their lights on decided to put a sign in their front yard to help explain their reason for leaving those lights, um, in position and on display. And the sign simply just said, welcome home, Jimmy. And that's when the rest of the community kind of went, oh, now we feel bad. Because they knew Jimmy was their son who had gone off to war. And so the, the hope was that as Jimmy returned home from war, he would see these lights as a sign of welcome and a reminder of all that he left behind as he was fighting for the freedom of those who were taking up their lights and taking them down and had the, now the right and the continued right to complain about those who hadn't taken those lights down. And so this idea of welcoming Jimmy home with these lights was meant to serve as a beacon of hope or, or, or of peace or of comfort for him as he returned. Now, that's what lights do for us. They draw us in. They bring us closer to uh, some source of comfort so often. We had the opportunity to meet um, my granddaughter, my newest addition, I'm sure, of what will be many, many grandchildren. And uh, right now it's cute and fun because it's all new, but uh, we were able to, uh, you know, be around her as a newborn and things. And of course, what would happen is any major light in the room would draw her attention and, and, and she would kind of do the slow looking over to the lights. You say, no, what does this have to do with your sermon? Nothing. I just wanted to talk about my new granddaughter. I should have put a picture up if I was thinking ahead, but this is what light does to us. It draws us in. It gets our attention. Last week, we had started uh, our journey through uh, the book of John. This is the gospel account of John the Apostle, the one who writes about himself. His description of himself as he, as he writes this letter is the one whom Jesus loved. So John had a, a, a special relationship, but he even didn't want to refer to himself by name. It's not because he, he didn't say the one that Jesus loved more than the others. He just wanted to indicate, I understood, I experienced the love of Jesus firsthand. And as he is writing uh, this gospel account, we had said that it complemented the other three that had been written, but is coming at it from a different perspective. He wants to highlight certain aspects of the universality, if you will, of the Son of God and all that he brings to uh, the, the story of the creation, the fall, and the redemption of man. And so John has a unique perspective from his own experiences that some many years later after the other gospel accounts were written, he decided uh, under the inspiration of the moving or the compelling of the Holy Spirit to add his own voice to the equation. And he tells us at the end of his letter in chapter 20, the whole point of why he wrote what he wrote. And we said, this is the theme of the entire letter of the entire account. In verses 30 through 31 of chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John opens up, that's the end of the book, so he kind of lays it out there plainly for us to see that this is why I wrote this, but he starts it off with this prologue of profound metaphor. And he tells us that Jesus is the eternal word. He is the light of the world and he is the expression of the grace of his father, the one true God. And so before we revisit that, let's take a moment to pray. Let's ask the Lord to give us clarity on these things and then understand this concept of as we looked at the eternal word of God last week, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this idea of Jesus being the light of the world. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us together. And we, Lord, we come under the authority and the inspiration of your word. Lord, we know that uh, as we come into opportunities like this or situations like this, whether it be physically in person on a Sunday morning or we're watching this later on, whatever the case may be, Lord, we come into these times with our own thoughts of who you are. So often those thoughts are informed by things other than your revealed truth. And so I pray, Lord, that as we come before your word today, that you would help us surrender to the reality, the revealed truth of who you are and to embrace that and to follow you, Lord, in all things. So help us, Lord, to humbly submit to this. Help us to hear the voice of the spirit with the areas that we need to be compelled uh, to be compelled with individually, Lord. Uh, Lord, we just pray that your presence would be made known to us in a clearer way today. In Jesus' name, amen. So among all the metaphors that John uses, especially the handful of ones that he opens his book with, none is perhaps more practical or helpful to us even than the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is, this light is the expression of who God is. Let's revisit the first five verses of John. He says, in the beginning was the word, and you see the capitalized W there. This is, this is naming Jesus as the, the word, the communication of God. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So remember, he was eternally preexistent, and he was also the same as God, yet distinct in person. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, nothing sustained, nothing was created without Jesus doing it. Verse 4 and 5 is where we will focus our attention to begin with. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or your translation may say, it is not, it, the darkness did not comprehend it. And so um, I think the, the translation of overcome is a little bit more accurate to what uh, the concept that John is driving at here. And that is that the light, the darkness could not overtake it or not even just comprehend it. It couldn't apprehend it. So the, the darkness is not able to advance against the light. You are forgiven, my brother. <laughs> So why the, the metaphor of light being so helpful to us is because it's an expression of many aspects of God's character. This is a, a revelation of who God is in the form of Jesus. And, it, and, and light gives us a different aspect of this one that I think is extremely helpful. 
Light is the revelation of God's physical glory as we see all of God's instances in the scripture of his appearing or how he would move or conduct himself. It seems to always be in the presence of light. It seems to always be with this forceful light or this helpful or guiding light taking place. The glory of God in the tabernacle is is of brilliant light. The the leading of the wandering Jews off by the the fire, the pillar of fire in the sky as they follow him. Those uh, finding the birth of the Savior are following the light that is bringing them to Bethlehem. And as we discussed later on in this gospel account, we'll see the idea of the, 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 um, the time where Jesus was, was transfigured before several onlookers and, and, a, and a moment of God glorifying uh, his son before others. And that was a, an incredibly brilliant light. It, it stuck on their faces even after witnessing it. And so God's physical glory is depicted in this light so that whenever we encounter light, just personally, we either, we either have a little too much or we don't have enough. It's a, it's a very physical presence in our lives. And, and this is a, a depiction of who the Lord is for us. But it also depicts God's intellect. It, it's when we have bright enough light, there's no corner that the dust bunnies aren't revealed. Isn't that true? It's like you think a room is clean and then someone adds a little light and you go, mm, guess not. Light reveals these things and it spreads throughout every corner and it, and it takes over all these shadows. This is a, a picture of the omniscience or the all-knowingness of God. There is nothing he doesn't know. And, and we picture God's presence in our life like a light. We have to be reminded of the fact he knows it all. Isn't that comforting? Not really, is it? Kind of scary, a little shaming, a little humbling. This is who the Lord is. He's an invasive light. You'll hear me use that word invasive a lot whenever I'm thinking about the light of the, of the word and of the Lord because he and his care and his love for us doesn't just settle with leaving a lot of shadows in our lives. He, he has every angle covered and removes those shatter, shadows by his grace to come in and clean out that which holds us back. The things that we want to tuck away in the dark closets, the things that we want to leave behind the couch and underneath, we think if a good God would just leave those things alone. He doesn't need to know about those things, but a good God says, no, those things are holding you back. Your house isn't clean because of that. I won't allow this in your life. And so the the brilliance of his light, this all-knowingness of God comes shining through, which is, of course, also a depiction of God's holiness. When we think of the purest light or the brightest light, we think of its brilliance and its flawlessness. And this is who the Lord is. And so light is this incredibly descriptive metaphor to help us understand that the perfection of God in his holiness is an aspect of his character. You remember last week we had said that when, when God showed his grace through Jesus, he was revealing who God was. God didn't say, well, they really messed up. I should go find out a way of how I can forgive them. I need to go get me some grace so I can figure out how to deal with these people. I didn't see this coming. A characteristic of God is that he would be graceful, that he would be willing and moving in the direction of showing you and I another opportunity, another way, another chance, as we like to say in our vernacular. So if that's true of God's character, if we say, well, why wouldn't God just look the other way? Why doesn't he just shine the bright light? It wouldn't, wouldn't a forgiving, kind, gracious God just kind of go, look, they're going to be, they're going to mess up. They're going to be people. I'm just going to leave it alone. 
Why wouldn't he just accept us as we are? Why did he have to go through this incredible process of bringing his son into the world only to be cruelly punished and executed for us? If it's a characteristic of God to be pure and brilliant and flawless as we see depicted in the light, he can't just switch on and off his character. His holiness is so radiant and pure and flawless that the presence of our darkness, the presence of our sin is not allowed in the context. But because of his grace, he says, but I am going to clean them up. I will also make them bright, pure, flawless, brilliant lights so that they can be in my presence. First Timothy six says that this God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. This is why wrestling with theology or understanding doctrine is very helpful to us as believers. The more we understand the condescension of God to come down to be with us, which we'll look at in a minute, the more blown away we should be because we know who we are. You and I know our reflection in the mirror. And I say that uh, uh, illustratively about the fact that we see into our hearts, at least as best as we can. The scripture says that we can't even understand the depths of the depravity of our own hearts. But the stuff that's at the surface we know is there. And to imagine that a brilliant, flawless, pure God would find a way, I say tongue in cheek, would find a way to bring us into that light should blow our minds. The light metaphor is an expression of who the father is and that Jesus is the representation of that, not a copy. He is God. There's some aspects of this light that I want us to look at as we uh, jump down to verse nine, and then we'll finish out the text that we'll be covering through verse 14, if you have your Bibles with you. But uh, the, the first aspect that we're going to look at here is that this light, this torch, this brilliant, bright light is reliable. Last week, we talked about how when we get those flashlights that are, of course, non-LED, because those never die right? But we end up whacking those going, okay, right when I need the light the most is when it goes out. Basically, every scary movie is built on the premise that some battery is going to die right when you need it, whether it's the car that won't start or the flashlight that won't turn on. This is the experience of our lives. This is what we say is living in the fallen world. Between that and mosquitoes, these are the things that we just can't seem to explain. What's the point of all of this? Why do we have to deal with Such frustrations, just when we need the light is when it doesn't work. Well, this is the opposite of what John is saying is true of the Savior. And he uses it, he he teaches us this with one tiny little word in verse 9. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, truth means what you and I think it means. It's not like truth has some secret definition. It's just the things that are right and accurate and really happening. But there's also an additional part of this definition that I think is helpful. And that it's the opposite of what is imaginary. I think we would admit that a lot of people are living in what they perceive to be truth, but it turns out to be nothing more than imaginary. What's the phrase that we're throwing around nowadays? Your truth. My truth. If truth is subjective, we've heard this a lot from this pulpit and through our understanding and study of the scriptures over the years. But what's happening in our day and age is that truth is subjective based on experience. My truth tells me this. 
your truth might tell you this, but we understand that truth can't be subjective. It's not that those two things can be compatible. All people, all systems must surrender to one truth for anything to truly be true. He says repetitively redundant again. We went through a period that they've labeled the dark ages because they hadn't figured everything out. But eventually we had the enlightenment and we figured everything out. Truth was was discoverable. And then this idea of education being the fix to everything, which we still live in today, right? If we just teach people the right thing to do, they'll do it. How long have cigarette warnings been on the side of cartons? I don't know if the tobacco industry has taken a major hit from that label. doesn't seem to be the case. So do we get better because we've been quote unquote enlightened because we've discovered our truth or is the experience something else? Over the last century, we've had more casualties of war than all centuries combined. But no way, we figured things out. We, we, we had our peace protests. We said all the things to help people get educated and avoid these things. All these things go away. We don't have these problems anymore. We're improving. Not really. Truth has become this thing that is uh, perhaps the most divisive uh, aspect of our experience because we don't want to surrender to the revealed truth. We want to create our own. Jesus, in having a conversation with Pontius Pilate, the one who was one of the steps uh, uh, predestined to send him to the mission of laying his life down for our sins. Jesus was having a conversation with Pilate and, and he said, are you the king of the Jews? He says, well, you say I'm a king, but I have come for a purpose. I have come for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. I am here to shed light on what is true. In Pilate, you get the sense in the, the height of his frustration and the, the weight of his leadership and all of these things. And they even depict it, I think, pretty well in some of the movies we've seen where he just kind of rolls his eyes and just asks this pondering question, what is truth? In other words, everyone's got their own version. How am I supposed to know what's true or not? It's the same question they had then as we have now. So Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The glow around Jesus, if you picture him carrying a lantern and walking down a path, you know that feeling of when the light starts leaving you and you start realizing you are alone in the dark, you kind of turn into that five-year-old again and you want to skip a little closer to the people in front. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I've heard that it happens. I've never had it myself. I'm always very brave in the dark. That's why when I get out of my house at O Dark 30 and my car is at the end of the driveway in a very country setting, I have to quickly hit the unlock button so the lights come on. And I keep expecting to see one of those things like I, I saw in uh, some kids' movies before. You turn the lights on and all the eyeballs of the wolves are looking at you and everything. But I'm very brave in the dark. I've just heard it said. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. I'm carrying this lantern that lights my path, not the one you've been tripping over and stumbling over. And as my light or my glow moves on or goes down the path, you have a decision to make. 
Do I find peace and comfort stumbling around in this, in this darkness on this path that's loaded with boulders and, and stumps and all the things that I keep tripping up? Do I find some strange comfort in that continually, which we know people do? Or do I desire to have a path lit for me so that I can walk the course of life the right way? Jesus says, that's what I've been here for. I'm a true light. I'm a reliable light. You don't have to bang the flashlight in order to get me to turn back on. I am always bright and always shining. But also the light is resourceful. He says that he's the true light, which gives light to everyone. There's a a collective glow. There's a general glow, if you will, that the Lord has opted to leave as as a, a presence in the world, fortunately for us a collective grace, but also the fact that this light is made available to anyone more, per, more prominently to those who will receive him and to give their lives to him. It's interesting that God's nearly first act after making the heavens and the earth as they were made in darkness then says, let there be light. And he flips his own little switch. Maybe he did the clapper, we don't know. Let there be light and the spoken word, capital W, had the creative power to be able to just speak light into existence. And it's not just a a distant light that just allowed him to continue his work, but we know the sun and and the moon and all that's been given to us to be life sustaining light. That vegetation reacts to it, that you and I still are able to live in this in this light and it's perfectly balanced. It changes a little bit as we get closer to the equator, but then it changes as we go under again. And all of this is available to us. The Lord has hung that light, that life giving light in perfect balance and in perfect harmony with the life that he has created. Things die without the sun. The psalmist says for you, for with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? But it's not just the sun, the S-U-N, that sustains life. It's the sun, S-O-N, that reveals real life to us. And God reveals his truth through a couple of channels. He gives us his general revelation. It says the light shines to everyone. He gives us his general uh, revelation in two ways. He gives it to us in creation so that it's obvious to us that somebody did something. We don't look at our cell phones and we don't uh, marvel at all of their capability and say, isn't it great that over centuries and millennia that this just kind of flipped over and this primordial ooze kind of came up and made this incredible machinery and this great technology. We look at it and we say, wow, they're really smart who invented this, who created this, who's, who's adapted this over the time. We see things like that and we instantly point to a designer. But the scripture says that we see everything around us that is so clearly designed and we find ways to explain it away because of something else that we're trying to deny. This is how Paul says it in Romans 1. Beginning in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because of their unrighteousness, they look at the phone and they say, this had to have just developed over time by accident. Even though to everyone else, it would be obvious somebody designed it. Verse 19, 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He didn't hide this. He didn't keep it a mystery. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God has revealed himself in creation and he has done it plainly. Over time, we have got to think that this idea of defending the faith or pointing these things out has become so complicated and so complex. This discussion about truth is so heady. But the scriptures are saying it's pretty obvious. What we fail to understand is that people have set up methods and systems to explain it away, to suppress what is clear because of something or more accurately someone they don't want to surrender to. It's been said about most philosophies that they have been created to explain away God in order to give the creator of that philosophy an avenue towards sin that they knew God and his people wouldn't approve of. If you trace back all, a lot of the isms and the IESs and all these things that have come out of mankind and humanistic thinking, a lot of them point back to some devious behavior that somebody wanted to engage in and they needed God out of the way in order to move forward in it. So they create these elaborate systems, all an expression or a suppression of the truth. Adrian Rogers, the old time preacher that you perhaps perhaps here on the radio from time to time, used to tell an illustration of a trucking company who in their hiring practices used to put people on a, um, on a uh, lie detector machine, which is kind of funny to think about. I don't know how long ago this would have been. Imagine people getting away with this now. And even more uh, fascinating would be the questions that they asked, thinking about being able to ask these questions now. But the trucking company wanted to ask people a series of questions, and one of them was, do you believe in God? And they shared the results of these of this data because they found it to be really fascinating what was going on, that, that they would say out loud, so many would say out loud, no, I don't. And yet they found that the data, at least from the lie detector data, it was, they were failing the question. They were saying out loud, I don't believe in God, but something in their internal rhythms or whatever those machines pick up was saying, ah, but you do. You do believe in him. Now, again, it's a story, it's anecdotal. I'm no, I don't have the charts and the data up here and everything to say everybody really believes in God, but we have the scriptures that says that, that God has revealed himself plainly in creation and he's also revealed himself in general re revelation through our conscience. Ecclesiastes says that he has put eternity into the hearts of man. We've expressed it over the years as a God-shaped hole. There's something missing in our lives, and there's something that we're built with that directs us towards worshiping something. I think it's the great theologian Bob Dylan that said, you got to serve somebody. I don't even know if that's how the tune goes. I got to listen to that song at some point. We are created to want to serve someone. That's why peoples out of the clear blue will erect gods and statues and all these other kinds of things to figure out who made all of this. 
God has revealed himself through what is plain in creation, but he's also revealed himself in the hearts of our conscience. If you want to talk to your friends or your family, or your coworkers about uh, why they aren't following Christ, why they haven't seen the light of Christ, you need to understand what's going on in their conscience because everyone has one. And many people are doing all they can to, to sear that conscience or to callous it so that it does, it would seem like with some people, they just don't have any feelings whatsoever. But the reality is that we were born with, with this capacity to understand or believe in someone or something. And there's a reason why they have taken what is plainly revealed to them about the truth of who God is and they've squashed it down to something they can explain away. Proving to them that God is real or trying to with some facts and figures and intellectual arguments about the creation dates and all those kinds of things. While helpful, I believe those things do more to strengthen the faith of the believer as much as they do to convince the lost that he's worthy of following. There is a shortcoming in each of our consciences and God has chosen to reveal himself. Will we be the ones to shed light on those dark corners of their conscience? Will we speak truth into their life so that that light will shine in and on them as well and give them hope? Well, let's jump down to verse 9 and see that this light is approachable. Now, I needed it to say A-B-L-E just so it sounded like the other ones. But I think it's probably better said the light is approaching because of what the scripture is going to tell us. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or as we said last week that the message translation, the paraphrase of the scriptures said that he moved into the neighborhood. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We see going on here that the true light, which gives light to everyone, came into the world. Didn't just stay distant, didn't decide to glow from afar. Instead, he moved into the neighborhood. He brought his light to the darkest part of our existence, and he dwelt among us. And he came to his own. That means he came to his own creation, that which he made. And the nation that he decided to reveal himself to first said, nah, not for us, by and large. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the authority, he gave the privilege to become his children. So the light has been revealed to a people, the, the light has been revealed to this globe that is when wandering and stumbling around in darkness. And this light came in the perfect standard of who is Jesus before Jesus came, we were able to look at the, the, the law written down and say, okay, that looks like a really high standard. And then we were able to convince ourselves we can do that really well. We see it playing out with the, the young man that came to Jesus. And the, the, you're heading in the scripture, we'll call him like the rich young ruler. And he comes and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He says, oh, I'm doing that. I'm fine. He was able to convince himself, though. He wasn't in reality. He was able to look at that standard and say, I can get my way around that. That standard, that truth, that law came to reveal that we weren't ever going to be good enough. 
But we were allowed to convince, we were able to convince ourselves in our humanity that we could do it. So then when the light of the world comes, when Jesus comes, he obliterates all of those notions of us being able to be holy before God because he's just outdoing everybody. He's making the most religious look foolish and he's calling them out for it. The perfect standard of God's holiness is now moved into the neighborhood and we can't deny that he's the measuring stick. He's the one that we all need to be like and yet we can't figure out how to do it. The light was revealed and many rejected him. They chose instead to find the strange comfort of stumbling in the dark. And I'm okay with stubbing my toe. I'm okay with tripping all over myself. Why? Because then that way I don't have to answer to this light that's trying to guide me to go that way. I don't want to go that way. That's what lives within us. That's where that rebellion comes. So many rejected him, but not all. The light is going through this process of being revealed, rejected, but eventually received. There were some that recognized their need of a new life. And those that recognized it were given the right or the privilege to become God's children. We know the story of the, um, the parable that, that Jesus tells of the, um, the one that we call the prodigal son, the one who was, he knew he had blown it badly. He knew he had wandered away from the riches and the promise, the safety and security of his home because he was so anxious to go out and do his own thing. He goes and does it. But he comes to the realization, I can't figure this out. I'm not doing this well anymore. I, I, I'm probably going to die here in my, in my squalor and just be alone. It would have been far better for me to be back with my father, even if I were one of his servants. Even if I slept with the pigs, I would take it. This is, this is what we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about God as a gift giver. You see, I would come back to the Lord if I really understood how good I had it in his presence. I would come back and say, just make me one of your property. Just let me in the yard. I won't even move into the house. I'll sleep in the back. I'd be happy to be in the, in the presence of the Lord if it meant I was rescued from the life that I was doomed for. It's kind of like the psalmist says that uh, better is one day in the courts of the Lord than a thousand days in other courts. I would take that one day. It's like the mindset of the prodigal son. But God is a great gift giver. He is the one that, that gives far more than we could ever experience or expect. And he says, I'll do you one better. You're not just going to come and be my property, like the cattle or anything. You're going to come in and you're going to be my kid. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. This is what the Lord does in his grace. Is we wanted just the bare minimum. We would take it because we saw our destination for hell. We saw what our sins were costing us. He says, I'm not just going to erase the record. I'm not just going to make you pure. I'm going to adopt you. You're not going to sleep in the backyard in a tent. Go pick out a room. I'll see you at dinner. To those that received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And he says, the light is available to you. Don't you find 
that there was this switch that happened in your life when you surrendered your life to Christ, the scriptures that didn't mean a whole lot or didn't make a lot of sense now start to becoming revealed. They, they now start to, 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 uh, become alive in your life that, that you start hearing the voice of the Lord much clearer. I always illustrate it with like, uh, back in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up, we had stereo receivers with giant silver or black knobs. You guys remember those? Some of you still buy that equipment because you refuse to do the smartphone thing and just have your music downloaded. You're just ancient, I'm telling you. But no, it's you got those big knobs and you, you have those. This is what I picture going on in the life of God's people as they hear the voice of the Holy Spirit growing as the voice of the world and their flesh and the voice of the devil is, di- is dying down. As you have those giant knobs in your life. And the Lord doesn't just flip off the other one entirely saying, oh, it's the old you, you don't need to hear that stuff anymore. We grow in this process of the Lord turning up the volume of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we see more of the scriptures, it starts to have more, it breathes more life into our existence. We get more wisdom from it. And slowly but surely, the voice of the Lord, the, the voice of our, 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 um, our people, our former influences, or the, the ways that we would give our lives over to things that were just worthless, they start losing their taste, they start losing their impact as the voice of the Holy Spirit is growing in us. This is what it means to become, uh, to have the privilege of becoming the children of God. Two guys were looking for uh, one of the gentleman's keys. And uh, the guy wasn't really clear where he lost them, but they're looking around in a dark parking lot. And the lights are all out. And they're going, man, I don't, can't find these things. He says, I really, you know, you think they'd be right here and stuff. The one guy looks up and he sees his friend over underneath a spotlight and he's looking over there. He goes, wait a second. He goes, I thought you were over here near your car. He goes, I was, but the light's better over here. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And it's a terrible setup to uh, uh, hopefully an okay um, illustration here. But the reality is that you and I lost something in the dark. And we came to an awareness at one point. This just isn't working. I don't know what it is. I don't have hope in my life. I don't have an answer for what is clearly eating at my conscience, which is the sin that plagues us. And, and someone came along and presented a light and said, this will shine on all the areas that are plaguing you. This is the answer. This is the light of truth that will put everything in context for you and start you on this path of moving forward and growing in this life and walking in this light. And we said, well, I'd rather go underneath that light and find that than stumbling around over here. Well, you're not going to find your keys over there. I don't care. I found something better. The light is better over here. There are people in our lives, there are people in our church, we're seeing them every single week that are saying, I don't know what it is, but the light is better over here. This is a surrender that you and I need to make, is that, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of looking for all the pieces that I think I lost. Tired of trying to reclaim all the things that I thought made life fulfilling and happy and purposeful and all that, only to, to continue to be let down by them. The light seems to be better in your grace. The light seems to be better under your word. The light seems to be better around your people. I want to hear your voice. I want to find what you have for me to find over there. This is why Jesus says in John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Let's pray for one another to step further and further out of the darkness. Let's pray for those who are wandering, stumbling and tripping over there who no longer want to be there. 
Pray for them to find the light. You and I, all we, all we are tasked with is flickering that little bit of light for them to be drawn to the true light of Jesus Christ. We're going to prepare our hearts and our minds for communion now. And so uh, let's just take some time to pray. And I'm going to have um, our presenters find their places in uh, both of our location. Lord, I just want to thank you, God for bringing us before your table. And I thank you, Lord, for shining light on the darkness of our hearts. And I pray, God, that we would continue to surrender to to that which seems so invasive. I pray, Lord, that we would find comfort and peace in you knowing everything about us because you do have the fix to our problem, that you've covered it all by the sacrifice of your cross. And you've given power to that light by your resurrection from the dead. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to find our peace in you and find our calling in sharing that light with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.